Welcome to Investment Matters, the Newton Investment Management Podcast. Um, today, we're going to look at the evolving relationship between Russia and China, which is sort of coming about as a result of the, com- the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. Uh, and I'm joined uh, today by our geopolitical analyst and fixed income team member, Richard Bullock in Singapore, um, to talk about that. And we're going to start by looking at the new world order um, of autocrats versus Democrats that uh, is coming about as a result of this conflict in Ukraine. So, Richard, welcome. Obviously, with Russia sort of cut out of the Western system, as you said, is that going to bolster different alternative finance systems? And obviously, will that weaken the dollar over time? Or does it give, I mean, I've read something today that Russia may actually be strengthened slightly by, you know, bolstering its own financial system internally and its links with China. How do you see that playing out in that area? So the financial sanctions that have been placed on Russia's central bank, including uh, what amounts to a freezing of about half their reserve assets or $300 billion, uh, is a profound wake-up call for um, autocratic regimes or any country or regime that may fall foul of uh, the United States or or, um, other democratic um, countries like the European Union. Um, So I, I think what is shaping up from here um you know for for russia they've done as much as they can to try and um maintain the value of the ruble because that is a key barometer of confidence in their economy um so they've actually uh through capital controls um and through other measures they've been able to actually maintain the ruble at the same exchange rate to the dollar as it was on the eve of the invasion which is quite remarkable but you know, bear in mind this isn't a truly determined market exchange rate anymore. This is a um, this is a government controlled exchange rate. Um, but you know, the longer term um, uh, realization for for Russia is that they, you know, they they made a mistake having uh, such high level of foreign exchange reserves um, still held in in dollar and euro assets, um, and and other central banks will be of autocratic regimes will be looking at that model thinking you know do we do we need to um, diversify more away from the dollar away from the euro away from these democratic style currencies just make our reserves more diversified and and less dependent we talked about the evolving relationship between russia and china and how they're being sort of you know pushed closer together um even if they're not sort of uh, perfect allies in, in many ways but um, let's look at you know how this multipolar world economy might uh, these autocratic versus democratic blocks might affect sort of the financial markets like, over time. Uh, obviously, we know about the human costs, but should we look at sort of equities and the impact that uh, that uh, this conflict and the changing world order is having on that sort of part of the market? Yeah, I, I think this is really fundamental. The um, way in which um, equity allocation. Uh, could be impacted by this shift to a, a bipolar world of autocrats and democrats because effectively we're, we're shifting from a world order over the last 30 years that's been dominated by liberal economic uh, free trade where companies multinational companies could allocate capital to virtually any economy or jurisdiction in the world to seek the best return on that capital and so capital flows, uh, you know, human flows, 
um, they've been driven by this um, notion of liberal economic um, uh, agenda, uh, you know, which came about at the end of the Cold War in the early 90s. Um, but what's happening, what's likely to happen now, what we're already seeing the early indications of um, with with a split into a, a more autocratic led order and a, and a democratic world is that it's not going to be um, as easy for multinational companies to just put capital and, and capex and plants and factories and hire labor anywhere they wish to anymore. So that has lots of ramifications for, um, you know, the potential return on invested capital that um, international companies could achieve going forwards versus the optimal level that they were achieving in the past if they're forced, for example, um, to allocate that capital to to markets where labor costs are higher, if they have to invest in more um, industrial automated equipment to compensate. You know, we, we can see, um, you know, the potential um, differences coming in for returns on, on capital. Uh, but but it also means that the type of sector and the type of company that's likely to prosper in this new world environment where um, states are really going to be the entities driving a lot of these capital allocation decisions um, with, with big statist policies around energy transition, defense spending, resilience of the domestic economy in terms of new infrastructure um, to, to make themselves more secure in, in terms of national security. Um, those capital allocation decisions are going to be driven by governments, by government policy, um, and that will, you know, favour these big national state champions in sectors like energy, utilities, industrials, infrastructure, defence. Um, so that these are the kind of industries that should benefit uh, and that might actually take the lead in terms of stock market performance in, in the next five to ten years. No, thanks. Um, and I suppose we should also look at sort of uh, um, sort of interest rates and inflation. We've had sort of a, a long period where we've had sort of structural decline in inflation. Uh, we, we're now hitting a, a period of structurally high inflation. And I guess that was even before we had this conflict. I mean, what do you think this means for sort of for the rate cycle going forward? Does it have much impact on that? So I think geopolitical conflict, as we're seeing now, uh, and therefore the necessity to reorientate supply chains to bring them back closer to the domestic market closer to the west um, to change your you know labor hiring pools uh, this is all going to impact medium term inflation um, expectations and inflation levels because over the last 30 to 40 years the, the great benefit that's come with the globalization paradigm that I described, this free um, liberal economic world order, is that um, it led to perpetually lower costs um, and therefore um, you know, lower levels of structural inflation. Central banks could bring rates down commensurate with that, um, you know, which led to this virtuous growth cycle of lower rates, more, more leverage. Um, we're effectively going to see a reversal of that, those trends where um, geopolitical confrontation and conflict leading to shorter supply chains, more, more investment in, in Western domestic economies, similar to in the autocratic economies. Um, it is going to potentially lead to higher capacity utilization in those economies, uh, push up labor costs um, and, and, and 
we're already seeing the United States economy, for example, running at, at um, full to close capacity with a very small output gap. Um, so that I, I think what we're likely to see is higher structural levels of inflation and therefore, you know, a higher level for, for where neutral interest rates are, um, high, higher than in the pre-pandemic period. Um, so so that, that means that we, the bond investors uh, over time should get, you know, get, get better uh, nominal rates on their bonds. I think um, inflation is likely to not only be structurally higher, but also more volatile because what we see from, um, you know, a, a smaller um, opportunity set in terms of where capital is allocated um, and in terms of geopolitical shocks to the system would would mean that we get these periodic um, supply shocks to, that, that can drive costs up. So, you know, I think if you're a rates investor, um, you could think about higher neutral level of rates going forwards versus what we've seen, uh, but also expect more volatility in um, in average rates as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I mean, you've, you've already touched on the, you know, this chain sort of uh, financial system that we've been talking about. Um, I guess you, you're really saying we're going to have a completely redefined global currency system going forward with the, with the two, with the autocratic versus the democratic bloc. Um, what sort of um, what sort of effects do you think that's going to have on on uh, foreign exchange on FX going forward? Yeah, I, I think first of all, important to clarify that um, the you know, FX regime that we're likely to see is, is not going to change overnight. Um, the ch ch Chinese um, reserves of, of dollar assets are huge. It's a trillion dollars of, of US treasuries that that um, China owns. Um, that, that's not going to just be unwound and reallocated overnight. Um, you know, trade, a lot of trade is still invoiced in, in US dollars. The large majority of commodities are still priced in dollars, um, so that the dollar will remain very significant in the global trading and reserve balance system um, for for a period of time still still to come. But I think what we're seeing is going to be at the margin. Um, this is a decade um, time frame shift towards um, a different type of currency regime. At this point in time, it's not entirely clear what that will comprise of. Um, but I think it's fair to say today that autocratic countries like China, obviously Russia, uh, but, but a whole plethora of other ones um, in Latin America, Middle East, Africa, etc., um, may wish to reduce their de dependency on the dollar um, to, to, to quite a, a large degree. And, and they will look, Ch China is increasingly push, uh, pushing towards um, encouraging um, increasing amounts of bilateral trade with individual countries um, in in the currency of those those two economies. Uh, so, for example, when now it's uh, dealing with Russia, would would want to do more renminbi ruble denominated trade to to avoid using the dollar system. Um, same for even India and Russia. Right now, we saw reports um, a month ago that um, the Reserve Bank of India is looking for a mechanism to be able to buy crude oil from Russia by paying in rupees um, and Russia's central bank setting up a way to, to be able to receive that. So I think the, these are the kind of baby steps we'll see towards over time, um, either um, a more fragmented currency system with with many more currencies being traded and reserved, um, or, or we could see, for example, gold taking on a larger role. Um, central banks in recent years have been increasing their gold reserves uh, about 400 tons last year, um, according to the World Gold Council, uh, was was acquired by 
um, the world's central banks, um, which, which was up about 50% versus uh, 2020. Um, so gold, I think, will take on in increased importance going forwards. So the, the, the new uh, global FX paradigm is still shaping up, um, but I think a natural tendency for the autocrats to move away from the dollar um, is one conclusion that I've drawn. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I guess uh, very important to talk about as well is the uh, is the climate debate. Um, obviously, in the in the near term, I, I guess people have made the argument where, where Evans focuses on energy security, which in a way might impact the short term demand for fossil fuels. How do you see the the energy transition playing out, given that we've got these heightened levels of geopolitics going forward? It seems for for some time. Are you still optimistic that we can? achieve some of the, the net zero targets or are we going to have to, to is that going to be delayed basically by what we're seeing playing out in geopolitics at the moment? I think we'll see maybe a two to three year pushback, maybe five years pushback. Um, you know, in terms of bigger picture, um, the energy transition is about shifting fossil fuel um, um, and hydrocarbon um, molecules into electrons. And the, and the great benefit of that is that um, electrons are produced locally, uh, you know, by solar plants, by wind turbines. Um, uh, and so that there's less supply chain risk of, of that having to come from a, um, a nefarious rogue um, point of origin um, compared with fossil fuels today. So it is in national it is in the national security interest of countries um, in Europe, in the US, uh, but particularly in Europe to, to wean itself off Russian energy dependency to to, um, to accelerate that um, transition to, towards um, renewable energies and the, and the energy transition. I think that the problem is in the near term with with so much um, energy having come from Russia in the shape of gas, oil and coal, uh, you know, just to put it into context, about 40% of Europe's gas, um, about 25% of Europe's oil and, and a significant amount of coal as well. I think around 50% were coming from Russia. And, and now they've the, the Europeans have made such big pledges to um, wean themselves off um, and actually cut out European energy supplies altogether in a very short space of time. They want to reduce their purchases or consumption of Russian gas by two thirds by the end of this year. Um, they're looking to um, form a, a, an agreement around um, stopping purchases of Russian oil by the middle of this year. Um, and they've already stopped purchases of Russian coal. Um, so that that um, is not easy to replace um, with renewables overnight. And that they're, they're doing that um, by buying fossil fuels from other parts of the world, but from from the Qataris, buying more LNG, uh, from, from the US, from Australia, um, and, and buying crude oil from other sources. So this isn't a switch from Russian hydrocarbons, fossil fuels into um, renewables straight away. Um, it's having to bridge the gap um, still with fossil fuels, tr trying to manage that um, energy price shock to the economy, um, which would be um, a very profound price shock um, if they weren't able to still use fossil fuels in, in the interim period. Uh, but I think when, what we're waiting for now is the European Commission to come out, at, I think in July is the, is the date that's been slated for this, 
um, they're going to come out with a big overhaul of, of European energy policy, which will be provided to the EU 27 members um, to, to uh, you know, implement their own economies. This is going to be um, a new framework for thinking about the, the energy transition, um, which will incorporate both, you know, green renewables and um, geopolitics into one framework. Um, so we'll, we'll look out for that in July. Well, thanks, Richard. Um, yeah, we, we certainly will. Obviously, a, a long time concern, particularly in the West, has been uh, China's designs on Taiwan, which it sees as a sovereign part of its territory. Uh, we know that the US is has sort of certain um, legal uh, regulations in place that would see it have to defend or would defend Taiwan if there was a uh, any sort of invasion on that country. What we're seeing happen in Ukraine, do you think that has any effect or will have any impact on China's own designs on, on Taiwan? Um, do you think it makes it more or less likely at some point that we'll see you know, China moving on its ambitions in, in terms of Taiwan? Yeah, that, that's a great question and um, easy to draw parallels between the, what's happened with Ukraine and what could potentially happen with Taiwan. I actually think that um, the actions in uh, Ukraine probably reduce the likelihood of China doing anything um, overt um, and aggressive towards Taiwan over the next few years. And there's a, there's a few reasons for that. I mean, the, the first one is the type of response um, that Western countries have shown in terms of solidarity, um, the, the type of um, response that NATO has shown in, in, um, in coalescing together and, and offering support. Um, if, if China were to make an aggressive move on Taiwan, I think the, um, the um, security alliances in, in Asia that are just still starting to formalize at this point in time, um, the, the Quad, AUKUS, for example, that they would become, uh, they would become stronger. That's not something that China would want. Um, I think in addition to that, um, you know, money talks, um, you know, the economy is very important for China. Uh, China's trade relations with the West uh, are over a trillion dollars um, per annum in, in bilateral trade with the EU and with the US combined. Um, that is not something that Beijing would, would want to risk um, through secondary sanctions, through, um, through having trade embargoes. So I think that is a very powerful motivation when they observe the retaliation, the response that the West has shown towards Russia. Um, with, with the economic and financial sanctions. Um, so I, I think there are reasons to, um, to expect um, that, that China won't make that, that kind of move on, on Taiwan. But I think the, the other thing to bear in mind is the level of devastation that, that, is, uh, that we've seen in Ukraine in places like Mariupol um, has been absolutely terrible, but it's, it's completely destroyed um, a lot of Ukraine's infrastructure, the estimates that have that have come out so far from um, think tanks and universities suggest, uh, you know, already um, around half a trillion dollars worth of infrastructure has been destroyed. Um, now, I think China um, is stated objective is st still um, have Taiwan, take Taiwan, um, unify with Taiwan peacefully, and and to be able to. Um, you know, integrate the 20 odd million people in Taiwan in a peaceful manner whilst keeping the infrastructure intact. So I, I think there are reasons to think that um, actually the playbook that we've seen between Russia and Ukraine um, it is one that Beijing would very much wish to avoid uh, when it comes to Taiwan. Thanks, Richard. So, so hopefully one 
one silver lining of a, of a very of a very serious uh, ongoing conflict in, in Eastern Europe. Um, thanks very much, Richard. Uh, good to talk to you again, and we will catch up with you all again soon. Richard Bullock is an employee of BMY Mellon Investment Management Singapore and provides support to Newton Investment Management as a geopolitical strategist. Newton Investment Management North America LLC, NIMNA, or the firm, is a registered investment advisor and subsidiary of the Bank of New York Mellon Corporation, BNY Mellon. The firm was established in 2021, comprised of equity and multi-asset teams from an affiliate, Mellon Investments Corporation. The firm is part of a group of affiliate companies that individually or collectively provide investment advisory services under the brand Newton, or Newton Investment Management, Newton. Newton currently includes NIMNA and Newton Investment Management Limited, Newton Limited. Any statements of opinion constitute only current opinions of NIMNA which are subject to change and which NIMNA does not undertake to update. This publication or any portion thereof may not be copied or distributed without prior written approval from the firm. Statements are correct as of the date of the material only. This document may not be used for the purpose of an offer or solicitation in any jurisdiction or in any circumstance in which such offer or solicitation is unlawful or not authorized. The information in this publication is for general information only and is not intended to provide specific investment advice or recommendations for any purchase or sale of any specific security. Some information contained herein has been obtained from third-party sources that are believed to be reliable, but the information has not been independently verified by NIMNA. NIMNA makes no representations as to the accuracy or the completeness of such information. No investment strategy or risk management technique can guarantee returns or eliminate risk in any market environment, and past performance is no indication of future performance. The indices referred to herein are used for comparative and informational purposes only and have been selected because they are generally considered to be representative of certain markets. Comparisons to indices as benchmarks have limitations because indices have volatility and other material characteristics that may differ from the portfolio, investment, or hedge to which they are compared. The providers of the indices referred to herein are not affiliated with NIMNA, do not endorse, sponsor, sell, or promote the investment strategies or products mentioned herein, and they make no representation regarding the advisability of investing in the products and strategies described herein. Any forward-looking statements speak only as of the date they are made and are subject to numerous assumptions, risks, and uncertainties, which change over time. Actual results could differ materially from those anticipated in forward-looking statements. If distributed in the UK, EMEA, Australia, New Zealand, this podcast is issued by Newton Limited and may be deemed a financial promotion. Newton Limited is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, FCA, 12 Endeavour Square, London, E20, 1JN, in the conduct of investment business. Register in England, number 01371973. NIM is also registered as investment advisors with the Securities and Exchange Commissions, SEC, to offer investment advisory services in the United States. If distributed in Canada, this podcast is issued by either Newton Limited, which is availing itself of the International Advisors Exemption, IAE, in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, Ontario, and Quebec. The IAE is in compliance with National Instrument 31-103, Registration Requirement, Exemptions, and Ongoing Registrant Obligations, or NIMNA, which is availing itself of the IAE in the following Canadian provinces, Alberta, British Columbia, and Manitoba. 
The IAE is in compliance with National Instrument 31-103 registration requirements, exemptions, and ongoing registrant obligations.